Chapter 5 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 5. The Siege of Corinth, in Camp at Owl Creek, April and May, 1862. A few days after the battle, General H. W. Halleck came down from St. Louis and assumed command of the Union forces in the field near Pittsburgh Landing. Then or soon thereafter began the so-called Siege of Corinth. We mighty near dug up all the country within eight or ten miles of that place in the progress of this movement, in the construction of forts, long lines of breastworks, and such like. Halleck was a book soldier, and had a high reputation during the war as a profound strategist and great military genius in general. In fact, in my opinion, and which I think is sustained by history, he was a humbug and a fraud. His idea seemed to be that our war should be conducted strictly in accordance with the methods of the old Napoleonic Wars of Europe, which in the main were not at all adapted to our time and conditions. Moreover, he seemed to be totally deficient in sound, practical common sense. Soon after the Confederates evacuated Corinth, he was transferred to Washington to serve in a sort of advisory capacity and spent the balance of the war period in a swivel chair in an office. He never was in a battle, and never heard a gun fired, except distant cannonading during the Corinth business, and maybe at Washington in the summer of 1864. During the operations against Corinth, the 61st made some short marches, and was shifted around from time to time to different places. About the middle of May we were sent to a point on Owl Creek, in the right rear of the main army. Our duty there was to guard against any possible attack from that direction, and our main employment was throwing up breastworks and standing picket, and all this time the sick list was frightfully large. The chief trouble was our old enemy, Camp Diarrhea, but there were also other types of diseases, malaria and the like. As before stated, the boys had not learned how to cook, nor to take proper care of themselves, and to this ignorance can be attributed much of the sickness. And the weather was rainy, the camps were muddy and gloomy, and about this time many of the boys had homesickness bad. A genuine case of downright homesickness is most depressing. I had some touches of it myself, so I can speak from experience. The poor fellows would sit around in their tents and whine and talk about home, and what good things they would have there to eat, and kindred subjects, until apparently they lost every spark of energy. I kept away from such cases all I could, for their talk was demoralizing. But one rainy day while in camp at Owl Creek, I was in our big Sibley tent when some of the boys got well started on their pet topics. It was a dismal day. The rain was pattering down on the tent and dripping from the leaves of the big oak trees in the camp while inside the tent everything was damp and moldy and didn't smell good either. 
Jim, says one, I wish I could just be down on Coon Creek today and take dinner with old Bill Williams. I'll tell you what I'd have. First, a big slice of fried ham with plenty of rich brown gravy, with them light, fluffy hot biscuits that Bill's wife could cook so well. And then I'd want some big baked Irish taters, red hot and all mealy, and then... Yes, Jack, interrupted Jim, I've edited old Bill's lots of times, and wouldn't I like to be with you? You know, old Bill always mass-fed the hogs he put up for his own eatin'. They just fattened on hickory nuts and big white and baroque acorns, and he'd smoke his meat with hickory wood smoke, and, oh, that meat was just so sweet and nutty-like. Why, the meat of corn-fed hogs was nowhere in comparison." "'Yes, Jim,' continued Jack, "'and then I'd want with the biscuits and taters "'plenty of that rich yaller butter "'that Bill's wife made herself with her own hands. "'And then, you know, Bill always had lots of honey, "'and I'd spread honey and butter on one of them biscuits and—' "'And don't you remember,' Jack chimed in, Jim, "'the mince pies Bill's wife could make. "'They were just stuffed with raisins and all manner of goodies, and—' But here I left the tent in disgust. I wanted to say, oh, hell, as I went out, but refrained. The poor fellows were feeling bad enough anyhow, and it wouldn't have helped matters to make sarcastic remarks. But I preferred the shelter of a big tree, and enduring the rain that filtered through the leaves, rather than listen to this distracting talk of Jack and Jim about the flesh-pots of old Bill Williams. But while on the subject, I believe I'll tell you about a royal dinner I had myself while the regiment was near Pittsburgh Landing. It was a few days after the battle, while we were still at our old camp. I was detailed as corporal to take six men and go to the landing and load three or four of our regimental wagons with army rations for our regiment. We reached the landing about ten o'clock, reported to the proper officer, who showed us our stuff and we went to piling it into the wagons. It consisted of big slabs of fat-side bacon, sow-belly, boxes of hardtack, sacks of rice, beans, coffee, sugar, and soap and candles. I had an idea that I ought to help in the work, and was trying to do so, although so weak from illness that it required some effort to walk straight. But a big, black-haired, black-bearded Irishman, Owen McGrath, of my company, one of the squad, objected. He laid a big hand kindly on my shoulder and said, Corporal, yez is not strong enough for this work, and yez don't have to do it either. Just give me the authority to superintend it, and you go sit down. I guess you're right, McGrath, I answered, and then in a louder tone for the benefit of the detail, McGrath, you see to the loading of the grub. I am feeling a little out of sorts, which was true, and I believe I'll take a rest. McGrath was about thirty years old and a splendid soldier. He had served a term in the British Army in the old country and was fully on to his present job. I will tell another little story about him later. I sat down in the shade a short distance from my squad with my back against some big sacks full of something. Suddenly I detected a pungent, most agreeable smell. It came from onions in the sack behind me. I took out my pocket-knife and stealthily made a hole in that sack, and abstracted two big ones, and slipped them into my haversack. My conscience didn't trouble me a bit over the matter. 
I reckoned those onions were hospital goods, but I thought I needed some just as much as anybody in the hospital, which was probably correct. I had asked Captain Reddish that morning if, when the wagons were loaded, I could send them on to camp and return at my leisure in the evening, and the kind-hearted old man had given a cheerful consent. So, when the teams were ready to start back, I told McGrath to take charge and to see that the stuff was delivered to our quartermaster or the commissary sergeant, and then I shifted for myself, planning for the good dinner that was in prospect. There were many steamboats lying at the landing. I selected one that looked inviting, went on board, and sauntered aft to the cook's quarters. It was near dinner time, and the grub dispenser was in the act of taking from his oven a number of nice cakes of cornbread. I sidled up to him and displayed the dime the cavalrymen had given me for those apples, asked him in a discreetly low tone if he would let me have a cake of cornbread. He gave me a friendly grin, pushed a cake towards me, I slipped it in my haversack and handed him the dime. Now I was fixed. I went ashore and down the river for a short distance to a spring I knew of that bubbled from the ground near the foot of a big beech tree. It did not take long to build a little fire and make coffee in my oyster can of a quart's capacity with a wire bale attachment. Then a slice of sow belly was toasted on a stick, the outer skin of the onions removed, and dinner was ready. Talk about your gastronomic feasts. I doubt if ever in my life I enjoyed a meal better than this one under that old beach by the Tennessee River. The onions were big red ones and fearfully strong, but my system craved them so much that I just chomped them down as if they were apples, and every crumb of the cornbread was eaten too. Dinner over, I felt better, and roamed around the rest of the afternoon, sightseeing, and didn't get back to camp till nearly sundown. By the way, that spring and that beech tree are there yet, or were in October 1914 when I visited the Shiloh battlefield. I hunted them up on this occasion and laid down on the ground and took a long, big drink out of the spring for the sake of old times. Taking up again the thread of our life in camp at Owl Creek, I will say that when there I was for a while in bad physical condition, and nearly all in. One day I accidentally overheard two intelligent boys of my company talking about me, and one said, If Stillwell ain't sent north pretty soon, he's going to make a die of it, to which the other assented. That scared me good and set me to thinking. I had no use for the hospital, wouldn't go there, and abominated the idea of taking medicine. But I was so bad off I was not marked for duty. My time was all my own so I concluded to get out of camp as much as possible and take long walks in the big woods. I found a place down on the creek between two picket posts where it was easy to sneak through and get out into the country, and I proceeded to take advantage of it. It was where a big tree had fallen across the stream, making a sort of natural bridge, and I run the line there many a time. It was delightful to get out into the clean, grand old woods and away from the mud and filth and bad smells of the camp, and my health began to improve. On some of these rambles, Frank Gates, a corporal of my company, was my companion. He was my senior a few years, a lively fellow with a streak of humor in him, and was good company. 
One day, on one of our jaunts, we came to a little old log house near the foot of a densely timbered ridge. There was nobody at home save some women and children, and one of the women was engaged on an old-fashioned churn, churning butter. Mulberries were ripe, and there was a large tree in the yard fairly black with the ripe fruit. We asked the women if we could eat some of the berries, and they gave a cheerful consent. Thereupon Frank and I climbed the tree and proceeded to help ourselves. The berries were big, dead ripe, and tasted mighty good, and we just stuffed ourselves until we could hold no more. The churning was finished by the time we descended from the tree, and we asked for some buttermilk. The women gave us a gourd dipper and told us to help ourselves, which we did, and drank copiously and greedily. We then resumed our stroll, but before long were seized with most horrible pains in our stomachs. We laid down on the ground and rolled over and over in agony. It was a hot day. We had been walking rapidly, and it is probable that the mulberries and the buttermilk were in a state of insurrection. But Frank didn't think so. As he rolled over the ground with his hands on his bulging stomach, he exclaimed to me, Levi, dash, I believe them, dash, secesh women have poisoned us. At the time, I hardly knew what to think. But relief came at last, I will omit the details. When able to navigate, we started back to camp, almost as weak and helpless as a brace of sick kittens. After that, I steered clear of any sort of combination of berries and buttermilk. Soon after this, Frank and I had another adventure outside the picket lines, but of an amusing nature only. We came to an old log house where, as usual at this time and locality, the only occupants were women and children. The family consisted of the middle-aged mother, a tall, slab-sided, long-legged girl, seemingly sixteen or seventeen years old, and some little children. Their surname was Ledbetter, which I have always remembered by reason of the incident I will mention. The house was a typical pioneer cabin, with a puncheon floor which was uneven, dirty, and splotched with grease. The girl was barefooted and wearing a dirty white sort of cotton gown of the modern Mother Hubbard type that looked a good deal like a big gunny sack. From what came under my observation later, it can safely be stated that it was the only garment she had on. She really was not bad-looking, only dirty and mighty slouchy. We wanted some butter and asked the matron if she had any she could sell us. She replied that they were just going to churn, and if we'd wait until that was done, she could furnish us a little. We waited, and when the job was finished, handed the girl a pint tin cup we had brought along, which she proceeded to fill with the butter. As she walked toward us to hand over the cup, her bare feet slipped on a grease spot on the floor, and down she went on her back with her gown distinctly elevated and a prodigal display of limbs. At the same time, the cup fell from her grasp, and the contents rolled out on the dirty floor like melted lard. The girl arose to a sitting posture, surveyed the wreck, then laid down on one side, and exploded with laughter and kicked. About this time her mother appeared on the scene. "'Why, Sal Ledbetter!' she exclaimed. "'You dirty slut! Get a spoon and scrape that butter right up!' Sal rose, cow-fashion, to her feet, still giggling over the mishap, and the butter was duly 
scraped up, restored to the cup, and this time safely delivered. We paid for the dairy product and left, but I told Frank I wanted none of it in mine. Frank responded in substance that it was all right, every man had to eat his peck of dirt in his lifetime anyway, and the incident was closed. I never again saw nor heard of the Ledbetter family from that day, but have often wondered what finally became of poor Sal. While we were at Owl Creek, the medical authorities of the Army put in operation a method for the prevention and cure of malaria that was highly popular with some of the boys. It consisted of a gill of whiskey, largely compounded with quinine, and was given to each man before breakfast. I drank my first jigger, as it was called, and then quit. It was too intensely bitter for my taste, and I would secretly slip my allowance to John Barton or Frank Burnham, who would have drunk it, I reckon, if it had been one half aquafortis. I happened to be mixed up in an incident rather mortifying to me when the first whiskey rations were brought to the regimental hospital in our camp for use in the above manner. The quartermaster came to Captain Reddish and handed him a requisition for two camp kettlefuls of whiskey, and told him to give it to two non-commissioned officers of his company who were strictly temperate and absolutely reliable and order them to go to the division commissary headquarters, get the whiskey, bring it to camp, and deliver it to him, the quartermaster. Captain Reddish selected for this delicate duty Corporal Tim Gates, a brother of Frank above mentioned, and myself. Tim was about ten years my senior, a tall, slim fellow, and somewhat addicted to stuttering when he became nervous or excited. Well, we each procured a big camp kettle, went and got the whiskey, and started back with it to camp. On the way we passed through a space where a large number of army wagons were parked, and when we were in about the middle of the park were then out of sight of everybody. Here Tim stopped, looked carefully around to see if the coast was clear, and then said, st st still well, let let's take, take a swig. All right, I responded whereupon Tim poised his camp kettle on a wagon hub, inclined the brim to his lips, and took a most copious draught, and I followed suit. When we started on, and it was lucky for me at any rate that we didn't have far to go, I hadn't previously during my army career taken a swallow of whiskey since one time at Camp Carrollton, I was weak and feeble, and this big drink of the stuff went through my veins like electricity, its effects were felt almost instantly, and by the time we reached camp and had delivered the whiskey, I was feeling a good deal like a wild Indian on the warpath. I wanted to yell, to get my musket and shoot, especially at something that, when hit, would jingle. A looking-glass, an eight-day clock, or a boat's chandelier, or something similar. But it suddenly occurred to me that I was drunk and liable to forever disgrace myself and everybody at home, too. I had just enough sense left to know that the thing to do was to get out of camp at once, so I struck for the woods. In passing the tent of my squad, I caught a glimpse of Tim therein. He had thrown his cap and jacket on the ground, rolled up his sleeves, and was furiously challenging another fellow to then and there settle an old-time grudge by the ordeal of battle. 
I didn't tarry, but hurried on the best I could, finally got into a secluded patch of brush and tumbled down. I came to my senses along late in the evening with a splitting headache and feeling awful generally, but reasonably sober. And such was the conduct, when trusted with whiskey, of the two non-commissioned officers of Company D, men who were strictly temperate and absolutely reliable. But Tim had no trouble about his break. I suppose he gave some plausible explanation, and as for me, I had lived up to the standard so far as the public knew, and maintained a profound silence in regard to the episode. Tim and I, in private conversation or otherwise, both carefully avoided the subject until the time came when we could talk and laugh about it without any danger of tarnishing our escutcheons. In the meantime, the alleged siege of Corinth was proceeding in the leisurely manner that characterized the progress of a suit in chancery under the ancient equity methods. From our camp on Owl Creek, we could hear, from time to time, sporadic outbursts of cannonading, but we became so accustomed to it that the artillery practice ceased to excite any special attention. The Confederates began quietly evacuating the place during the last days of May, completed the operation on the 30th of the month, and on the evening of that day our troops marched into the town unopposed. End of chapter 5